Hello, podcast listeners. Sleigh bells are ringing. We're definitely listening. Welcome to part one of the final podcast of 2016. I'm Alex Clark and I'm here with my co-host Will Rycroft to look back on what has been a, shall we say, very memorable year, Will? Mm. Full of things some of us would rather forget. But thankfully, it's also been yet another remarkable year in the world of books. And we're going to discuss our favourite titles of this year. We'd love to hear yours too, so do get in touch over on Twitter or on Facebook at Vintage Books to let us know which authors kept you up at night or missing your stop in 2016. And in part two of this podcast, because there's far too much to fit into just one, we'll also be looking forward to the literary treats to come in 2017. But before that, we'll be spreading Christmas cheer by sharing a sherry with award-winning poet Ruth Padell and rounding off the year with a chat with the one and only Jeanette Winterson. And also in this episode, we would like to make a special plea because actually all we want for Christmas is to hear from you about what you think of our podcast. We would love it if you might take just a couple of minutes to rate or review us on whatever platform you listen to your podcasts on. We promise that we will read everything and it would really, really help us out. Although, you know... It is Christmas time. I mean, be gentle. Yeah, exactly. Be generous. <laughs> <laughs> Award-winning author, poet, bookseller, booktuber, podcaster and poetry judge for this year's Costa Book Awards, we couldn't think of anyone better to invite onto the show to talk about the books of the year. And so we're thrilled that Jen Campbell is in the studio with us. Welcome, Jen. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. I'm very honoured to be in the Red Room. <laughs> the inner sanctum. The inner sanctum of vintage. Yeah. Um, it has been an amazing year, hasn't it? We have had an awful lot to read. Mm-hmm. Jen, what have been some of your top picks? I was going through Goodreads this morning, having a look, trying to work out what my favourite ones of this year are. I think, novel-wise, because that's probably a good place to start, The Tidal Zone by Sarah Moss. Mm. Um, was really amazing and Autumn by Ali Smith and I link those two together because they're both novels that deal with current political climates um, as, as well as having a very strong narrative structure so, um, centred around family as well I think both of those were amazing yeah, yeah. I've got both of those are on my if anybody wants to buy me a book for Christmas I mean literally any of you uh, I would love either of those because I'm intrigued by both I mean Ali Smith is fantastic but She's yeah the, the title zone has, yeah. has I just love the idea that it was as you say absolutely engaged in the now and yes. what's going on right now which it's fiction about, doesn't often do no it's about a girl called Miriam who collapses at school that's that's well we open actually with her father thinking about her being conceived and then she collapses at school her heart stops and everyone's trying to work out what is going to happen next um, and Miriam also is discussing throughout the book what's going to happen with our country next and what's happening in Syria and mm. like the now it, as autumn is now which is is, a, is about Brexit so yeah all about now 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 yeah I mean Ali Smith I think had to write that book in a tremendous kind of yeah. rush and then on top of that also had to then kind of speed up again and extend it a bit because to take account of the um, somewhat unexpected yeah. Um, yeah. referendum result and it does make for really really compelling kind of reading doesn't it there's a certain sort of energy in that kind of writing I think so also I think it's quite powerful because it's brave um, it's perhaps something where you're not going to be immortalised because it is so of this present. If someone reads it in 30 years' time, I kind of hope it doesn't resonate because then, you know, the repercussions wouldn't have been mm. so vast. Um, 
So I think there is something brave about just embracing the now in, instead of being conscious of legacy or whatever. Mm. And you know that as a writer, you're not going to have the ultimate control that you might have ordinarily. You are going to have to hand this book in. Yeah. And you're not going to spend, you know, years polishing it. it it's a, you're right. It's a very brave thing well, to also do. Also because she didn't know how where the book was going in the sense mm. that she was writing it up to Brexit. So almost that was controlling some of her narrative. Mm. So she is giving over that control. No, it's brave. I like it. Well, what about you? Well, I'm going to go something with which absolutely isn't about the now because it's about the First World War. And as somebody who avoided books about the First World War for a good period of my life because I was involved in a show that was set in the First World War and I was just I had enough, frankly. Um, uh, I think you a, better say what it was. Oh, it, it, <laughs> War Horse. A small show called War Horse. A little show yeah. called War Horse. Nobody really went to it much. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't think it did very well. Um, so uh, currently on tour around the world. Um, so no, there's a book called War and Turpentine by Stefan Hertmans, which um, basically Stefan found, he was given some, some journals by his grandfather and he basically has used those as the basis for writing a novel. And so it is a novel, but it's very much based on these factual journals and you can tell that when you read it because it's filled with such amazingly rich detail it's it's so obviously real if you sort of mean it's not the construct of an author and yet he's turned it into this work of art by fictionalizing it and it gives you as good an insight as to what it would have been like to be a, a soldier in the you know in Belgium in the first world war it's just awful and it's also filled with beauty and a story about painting and art and love and it's a sort of quiet book, but when I saw a review in the paper, it said this is a this is a future masterpiece. You know, this is a, a future classic, and it's such a hard thing to call that. You know, when you're reading a book, and I'm sure we've all thought about all sorts of books that have probably disappeared by now. But I do think that book is the kind of book that will still be read in Say fifty the title years. Again, War and Turpentine. It's a good by, title. It's a great yeah, and it's just fab. And it, I, I was surprised by me realising that that was the fiction book that's really stuck with me this year. It's it, really interesting, isn't it? That just brought to mind um, the book His Bloody Project by mm. Graham McRae Burnett, simply because, and obviously that's not about the First World War, shortlisted for the Booker Prize, um, but it was about a sort of fictionalisation of true accounts and those kind of blurring of um, of lines. And it is interesting the way that fiction is sort of headed in that in that examining its sources kind of direction. Yeah, well, we have this very uh, UK thing, which is that there is fiction and there is non-fiction. But in Europe, they have these totally different categories. There's this thing called autofiction, which is fiction which mixes autobiography and fiction. And that's a very, very popular form of writing over there. That's pretty much, I suppose, what War and Turpentine is. Mm. And if you think about people like Knausgaard and uh, others, you know, that th they mix fact and fiction to devastating effect sometimes you know so I, I, I love that kind of writing one of my favourite things is watching people panic when like trying to work out how to categorise things and people are very <laughs> stringent about their Goodreads shelf and then they read something like Grief is the Thing with Feathers or Maggie Nelson's book and yeah. they're like what is it <laughs> how do I define this is it memoir is it essay is it poetry what is it I don't know Yeah. and yeah that's one of my favourite kind of things too I'm glad you mentioned Maggie Nelson because yeah. The Argonauts was one of my books of the year I still haven't read it yet though it, I adore oh, like, no spoilers duets. No, no spoilers. No. And actually, I'm not sure how you could spoiler it. I mean, this isn't a very good thing to say in this context, but I'm not even really quite sure how I can describe it. Um, but it is a new sort of memoir mm. writing. Well, it's about her writing about her life, isn't it? And her husband, who's, who's gender fluid. Um, and I haven't read it, but I've read Bluettes. And she jumps. She takes one thing from one paragraph and then uses that 
to power another thought that's about something completely different and yet you see the way her mind works it's like being in someone's head the thoughts aren't linear but they do make sense and they do follow each other in some form yes yeah, yeah. it was a, it was a really impressive piece of work i'm excited to read it uh, one of my novels of the year was also uh, war-based. It was the Gustav Sonata by Rose Germain, uh. um, in which actually, you know, the, it's the shadow of the war, really. Mm. It's the aftermath of the war. And it's also um, a, a, an unexplored topic in fiction, in a way, the friendship between um, two boys and that idea of friendship and it persisting over over many, many years um, was just so brilliantly done. But also that idea of... Um, the sort of central idea of the book is neutrality because it's set in Switzerland. Um, Switzerland, as we know, a neutral country in the Second World War. But what does that really mean, asks Rose Germain. You, know, you think that just means it's sort of sat it out. But of course, actually, neutrality is somewhat less neutral than we think. And so it is if you are a person who attempts to remain neutral, to master your feelings. Uh, and that's really what the book is about. It's just absolutely brilliant. Jen, have you got any other books that you'd like to draw attention to? Uh, what, fiction or other categories? Hey, remember, we don't like to categorise here. Ooh. You can choose whatever you like. Oh, well, I, I have... You can genre pick, fluid. I, I've got <laughs> poetry, short stories and non-fiction. Where would you like me to go? How about poetry? Because this is... You're very good on poetry. Jen and I did a, a vlog together where we where she's trying to help me with my, my sort of aversion to poetry. So I she, do. She an aversion stuff. to poetry. I, I, ha- I have a poetry aversion, but not aversion. I just... I don't... I'm not, I'm not very... <laughs> That's I'm not worse. Very, I'm not very good at it. I don't really get it. And so... You, you can feel quite excluded from poetry if you don't understand how it how it works. Mm. Can I just ask, just to, do you mean, when you say you don't get it, do you mean sort of modern stuff that you may fear sort of attempts to kind of resist meaning and, and narrative? Or do you mean the whole thing? No, I just mean that often I read a poem and I kind of go, I don't really understand. Why is that line on that? over that word on that line why has that not got capital I don't understand what the rules of poetry because they're all everyone seems to have their own rules of how they're Uh writing it and why is it this form why is it that and I don't mean why doesn't it rhyme I mean I can I can get past that good because I would slap you Um, well he did say why is that capital there well, yeah, because some people capitalise first lines of lines and others don't. You know, I and, don't. Yeah. No, I think it's yeah. That's that's. I think that's something that's dying out. Some people do, some people don't. I mean, I think it is. It does. It does stem from teaching at school, and people are intimidated because you're taught poetry from the point of view of examination and being able to point things out, and that there is a right or a wrong mm. answer. Um, and that's a shame because I think it scares people away. I think poetry really benefits from discussion, from pooling ideas. And what did you think of this? And mm. you know. I think that that is where it really comes to light. This year was quite interesting. I did talk about, Will and I did a video together, as he said, about um, about poetry. And one of the books I mentioned was Why God is a Woman, which is one of my favourite books of the year. Um, so I would encourage you to go and check that out. But the ones I wanted to mention here, and I'm going to be impartial about them, are the Costa shortlist. I was going books. to say, you've had a busier year than, than I've read a usual. lot of poetry, haven't you? <laughs> so much poetry, speaking in rhyme at some points of this year. Um, so there are four books. On the shortlist, we've got, uh, I'll mention them in alphabetical order, we've got Sunshine by Melissa Lee Horton, which is a fantastic, rushing collection. It it falls off the page, this immediate collection, which is about mental health and the failure of the mental health system and sexuality and relationships. Um, The next one is Falling Awake by Alice Oswald, which you guys published Mm -hmm. at Jonathan Cape. And um, that is a beautiful exploration of, of Greek mythology and how that ties into human nature and things falling down and... Um, the circle of life almost um next one is say something back by denise riley which is a really hard-hitting collection of grief poems it's about the death of her son um 
and you really go through a whole roller coaster of emotions in that book she she is blunt with him she's cross with him you know like if you lose a child in the supermarket and then you find them and you want to hug them but you immediately shout at them don't ever do that again because you're furious because you were so scared Mm. a lot of that is in that collection and it's so heartbreaking because you know he isn't coming back um And then the final one is Let Them Eat Chaos by Kay Tempest, which is a long-form poem that she adapted from an album she made, which is a call to arms, really, political poetry, getting people to wake up. It's about um, a few Londoners who are awake at 4 a.m. in the morning when they shouldn't be, when everyone else is asleep. A storm is brewing, and she's saying everyone should be awake right now and Mm. paying attention. It's great. I I really loved Denise Riley's book Say Something Back and and I mean it's also in moments very very funny. It is. And the the shift of of registers, you know, it goes from what's almost like sort of zappy funny kind of off the off the cuff sort mm. of poetry to these incredibly elegiac pieces. I thought it was incredibly powerful. And I also loved Kate Kate Tempest's collection and I love the way you know we've been talking about breaking boundaries breaking divisions between different art forms and it's the way that she conceptualizes her sort of um, creative universe as it were Mm. and then just keeps reaching into it to make different pieces of work whether it's a novel whether it's a collection of poetry whether it's a performance poem Mm. whether it's an album it's Mm. just kind of brilliant and also the way that she gets you involved as well not only Mm. in the poetry telling everyone pay attention but also at the beginning she says you must read this out loud so she's encouraging you to put down whatever else you're doing stand Mm. up and get involved um i think it's great great range there of the poetry which is very exciting i mean we'll talk about this in part two of this podcast we talk about books we're excited about for next year Mm. but there is some amazing poetry coming up next year and inspired by our conversation jen i'm determined to sort of you know break my my poetry cherry that's not even a phrase but anyway it is now do you think you should do some kind of read along with will sort of a blog so we see how you're getting on <laughs> oh can we <laughs> well, see, well jen and i are definitely gonna do another video together aren't we when we're going to talk about we've been recommending books to each other and once we've both had a read of some of those recommendations we'll mm. come back and see how we're getting on and i'll Check be in. i'll be wearing a sort of blues on shirt and writing poetry myself by that stage i'm sure he said <laughs> using a, an analogy of poetry that doesn't exist anymore anyway before we finish i do want to mention so it's really hard we're thinking about books of the year to sort of pick one but I'm going to mention one that I read very near the beginning of the year and is still with me at the end of the year and that is When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi mm. um, just an amazing memoir about a neurosurgeon getting a, a very severe cancer diagnosis and having to sort of reappraise his life or what the, the purpose of his life was it is just such an intelligent beautifully written book and there's a afterward written by his uh, widow Lucy which is just devastating and as as a sort of as I say as a book it's the kind of thing that I've been pressing into people's hands and mm, it's absolutely brilliant we spoke to it. Lucy didn't we we did yeah um, earlier in the year on this on this podcast when she was over in the UK for a visit and it's difficult to explain why it's such a great book because I think it it's one of those things that you you immediately default to thinking it's going to be very tragic mm. you know that this is a very very sad story of somebody who not only dies very prematurely but um, leaves behind a a small child a Mm. widow it's incredibly sad there's sort of no redeeming feature to that story Um, and yet there is in the way that he writes about it there is an understanding of our mortality and of what it means to to get to grips with that and it's it's just an amazing book I think the real key to him was that he he was somebody who had studied literature at university and 
his whole purpose in life was to try and work out what life was all about. And his switch into medicine and into neurosurgery was, was part of that same idea. He wanted to know how the brain worked because that was surely where we resided as a person. And so there's no difference really between his medical background and his literature love. And that shines through in this book. It is so intelligent. It's filled with the amazing sensitivity and humanity. And I think that's what makes it such an, as you say, like an enervating read. It, you feel very positive about life at the end of it, even though what you've been reading about is, is somebody's death. It's looping me back, rather kind of unexpectedly, to a work of, of fiction, which is Don DeLillo's Zero K, mm-hmm. um, which in some ways has become uh, strangely even more timely as we, you know, read more and more about cryogenics. You know, that is sort of what the book is about. It mm. is about somebody who um, decides that they are going to attempt to resist death. But of course, it is also about what we even mean by that. What is um, consciousness? What could we be if we were disembodied, if we were brought back absolutely free of our social and historical context and it's a very hard book to read in some ways and it doesn't easily yield itself up to you which is perhaps not sounding quite like a sort of great Christmas recommendation but I thought it was an amazing piece of work and I really I really recommend it. I really liked it too I was quite surprised at how I don't know it made me feel like in fact the book was a bit like a response to how you would feel if you, if the world that we live in was so rubbish that actually you would rather voluntarily freeze yourself right now in the hope of being woken up in the future when things have been sorted out. That's what it kind of felt like. Mm. And for 2016, that felt entirely appropriate. Well, there is that, again, coming back to this, this theme of breaking down boundaries, there's a part of that book in which the person to whom this has happened is sort of uh, disembodied in, in this kind of science fiction type space and their mm. consciousness is just sort of free-flowing and it is like poetry mm. and it's one of I sat reading it thinking yes this is what it would be like which of course I can never know he can never know but no. it was amazingly kind of affecting it sounds great <laughs> <laughs> is my is my eloquent summary of what you just said <laughs> I'm gonna I'm just gonna whack in with some things that were a little bit more might we say things you might want to read at Christmas um it's been an amazing year for historical fiction and uh, books like the Essex Serpent by mm. um by Sarah Perry uh, and Golden Hill by Francis Spufford I do think are wonderful presents and wonderful um books to just take your yourself away into a quiet corner when you really want to get away from the party games can I recommend one as well then it's a short Please. story collection by Lauren Slater and it's called Blue Beyond Blue it's a collection of fairy tale inspired short stories and some of them are ridiculous and some of them are deeply moving one of them is about a woman who gives birth to Charles Darwin who's come back to test his theory of evolution <laughs> so hi I'm just here thank you he's, he's born in a tweed suit and she's very confused um, yeah they're, they're great and, and um, a great form of escapism to get away from well, from 2016. <laughs> yes. Well, as you can tell, we could probably talk all day about mm-hmm. all the books we would uh, recommend from 2016. You can actually see Jen has a, a YouTube channel where she talks about books all the time. And she's fun. All the time. No, I mean, not all, all the time, but, you know, no, she's no, there actually all the time. very regularly. <laughs> Even <laughs> so, when the camera's not there, just all the time. <laughs> <laughs> so do check that out if you haven't seen her before. We will be back for part two of this podcast where we'll be talking about our highlights of 2017. Uh, but for the moment, Jen, thank you so much for coming in. Thank, thank you for having me. Our next guest is an author described by Colm Toybean as a poet of great eloquence and delicate skill, an exquisite image maker who can work wonders with the great tradition of line and stanza. 
Her voice has an astonishing resonance. Well, Colm is quite right. And we are very excited to be able to experience that voice for ourselves in just a minute. But not before I tell you that Ruth Padell is a prize-winning poet, fellow of the Royal Society of Literature and reader in poetry at King's College London. She's published nine collections and in 2016 she was the judge for the International Man Booker Prize and chair of the judges for the T.S. Eliot Prize. I am delighted to be joined by Ruth Padell. Ruth, this beautiful, beautiful book, Tidings, that we've got in front of us, just tell us a little bit about it. I mean, it's so Christmassy to look at. It is Christmassy to look at. I wanted wanted it to be more than Christmas. I Mm. wanted it to be about the society we live in now and um, how we how we can enjoy the the things that there are to enjoy, but not to turn away from the things that are very hurtful about our world. Yes, exactly. I mean, you're quite right to say what you've got on the on the front cover is this this lovely church scene, snowy scene, and angel trees, and then the fox, um, and the fox who is sort of beautifully present um, in the book. Just explain to us what he, or indeed she. He's a she. Yes, a she. <laughs> yes, I wanted Represents. a female character. Yes. <laughs> and we've got we've got four main characters. We've got the angel of silence, who's a male angel. And um, we've got the homeless man, Robin. Mm. But then we've got these two female characters, the little girl, Holly, and the fox. And uh, again, you say that you want to bring us Christmas in the round. Uh, uh, to come back to what the book looks like, you sense something very sort of old-fashioned and traditional. But it's not about that at all, is it? Just say a little bit about the, the story that you've you've constructed. Yes, so the, the narrator is the angel of silence. And in my in my book, he can only speak for 24 hours starting on Christmas Eve, like the, the tradition of animals mm. or children's toys. And um, he's he's at old St. Pancras Old Church, which is a really, it's in my it's in my borough in Camden. And it's one of the oldest sites of Christianity in Europe. And it's actually built over a Roman altar. And it's on it's a bank. It's tiny, isn't it? It's, it's, it's tiny. It's tiny absolutely beautiful. I live nearby it too. And it's mm. really, really atmospheric, isn't it? It is. And it's got this most amazing park on, um, around it where mm. Mary Wollstonecroft is buried, where her daughter Mary Shelley used to meet her lover before she became Mary Shelley. And she met Shelley at her mother's grave. And also the Hardy tree, when Thomas Hardy, before he wrote all his novels, was a surveyor, and he was asked to slice the land in two. And it was consecrated land. So as a feeling man, he said, we can't leave these poor souls in the ground and not remember them. So he he got them to stack all the gravestones around a tree, which has now sort of flown over them and round them. It's an extraordinary sight. It looks like a sort of installation or something. Um, so there's all that as well, the sort of sense of human lives having gone on for so long. And then human lives all around in Summers Town and um, Camden Town and King's Cross and St Pancras. Well, exactly what you have in that particular bit of, of London, and it's funny, isn't it, because Summers Town is such a sort of bucolic-sounding word, but actually it's a very sort of inner-city part of London where all sorts of populations and neighbourhoods butt right up to one another, immense wealth with not immense wealth. And then you've got these great um, places of ingress and egress, these places of arriving crowds and crowds of people, and very, again, very near the West End. It's sort of all human life is here, isn't it? Absolutely. And and St Pancras, I mean, I did a lot of research on St Pancras. I mean, he was, of course, San Pancrazio. And he was a, a boy who came from Phrygia, which is next door to Syria. 
um, and he was an immigrant to Rome and he refused to um, sacrifice to the pagan gods. So Diocletian had him martyred. He was either sent to the games and there was a leopard, which actually he was so holy that he wouldn't attack him until the boy gave it permission. And that's, that's what St. Pancras Old Church has gone for. So there's a picture of the boy with a leopard at his feet. Or other, oh, but I went to San Pancrazio in Rome, where actually the tradition is that he was, had his head cut off. So there are lots of frescoes in that ancient basilica um, of, of this boy having his head cut off by a centurion. And, it's, and I went down with Mr. Mr. Um, catacombs, Signor Catacombs, took me right down to all the catacombs <laughs> underneath. It was wonderful. And I, I, it was just so exciting. And so this cult grew up of San Pancrazio, who was the patron saint of children. And it's, but, but of course in Greek, it means hold all, pan crass, holding everything. And I think it's so funny that Saint Holdor became the patron saint of a railway station. <laughs> so just tell us a little bit about the child in this book. Tell us a bit about Holly. Okay, so Holly is seven and she's longing to have a puppy of her own. And she is the image of, of all of us who are lucky enough to have families and to have a nice family Christmas. But even in a nice family Christmas, there are disappointments. Children get so excited and they everything the promise of everything going to be wonderful. And of course, it isn't wonderful. And you get some Pokemon cards and you play with your things and they break. And um, you don't get what you long for, which is a puppy. Um, but you might get something else. And she does. Um, she does get something even more magical in a way. But I suppose the idea of Christmas, of safe family Christmas, is that we are all happy together, even with the family rows and yes, all that stuff. Yes, and we still have a certain degree of solidity, even if we're kind of rowing about what's on the telly or the lumps in the gravy or whatever it is. Exactly, um, I exactly. must say, I'm 47 and I long for a puppy. And when will my puppy get here at Christmas? It doesn't stop, does it, when childhood ends, that longing. We do want something that's perfect at Christmas. Exactly, exactly. And so uh, there's this idea of giving at Christmas, the gift, the given. And, you know, I was talking, um, you know, with with priests about this. And theologically, it's it's a sort of mutual giving because God, in, in the Christian theology, God is giving himself, but he's giving himself to pain, to human pain. So there's a lot of darkness in that idea of giving as well. And um, I think it's extraordinary how the story sort of addresses what happens psychologically in all of us, that we're all a bit disappointed. We all know as well, and have done you know, forever, that while we um, might be sitting there fortunately in our families or with our friends, eating warm, comfortable, we know that others aren't. But really, this year, that seems a particularly stark sort of uh, gap, doesn't it? Absolutely, Alex. Yes, that's why, I mean, I dedicated my book to Focus Outreach Team for the street population Mm. who are, um, they're they're in Camden, they're just behind Camden Town Tube, and they're wonderful. And um, they, one of them took me around just after Christmas last year, around a lot of the different um, residential homes. And I met the people who are on the desk, people coming in. There are some of them are wet places where people can drink. Some of them are places where people can take their dogs. Um, it can be quite difficult to handle. Um, the people who work there are wonderful. Um, but homelessness has ridden, risen in Camden and Soho in the last year, 37%. Yes, yeah. It's very hard to, you know, to think about but we have to think about it. It's you know, it's our society, and they are expressing something about our society. So, so I, you know, Robin, um, the, the name of course, Robin and Holly were a bit of a, a joke in a way. But Robin is is based on many true stories I've heard. 
And of course, uh, uh, you know, as you mentioned, St Pancras from right next door to Syria. I mean, our concept of people in need is also far, far beyond, you know, the bounds of Camden Town or London or these shores, isn't it? Well, we get we get the, um, you know, the the. the the Eurostar, and at the end of the Eurostar is the tunnel, and there was the jungle and Sangat and and terrible scenes of of longing. Knitting this all together into a narrative uh, poem, and particularly one that is not, you know, I'm looking at it now. It's not the Fairy Queen. It's not. You wouldn't break your foot on it, would you? It's, no, no, it's, it's a, a light. it's a it's a a nice concise piece of of reading for Christmas. I mean, that's quite a feat to do, isn't it? Well, thank you. Well, I do. I work very closely with my editor, who was wonderful and wonderfully ruthless. Um, there was a lot of chopping down done, um, but and um, you know, I had to take it, and she was quite right. And it, it is now pocket sized. Tell me um, a little bit about your abiding fascination with animals. Because, you know, this is not the first time, is it? You have form. I have form on animals, yes. I've got a track record. Um, well, I'm very interested in, in the fox and the relation between um, the, the wild and the tame, really. I mean, it is now much, much more likely that you'll see a fox in, in London or in any city yes. than um, in the countryside. And... Um, the fox is, is always the sort of the trickster figure, the one who slips between, you know, and there are good ecological reasons for that. A minor predator is a, is, is a survivor. You know, the large predators get killed off, but the, the, the cunning, small little predator can survive. And um, so I've, got, I've chosen a fox as a kind of the spirit animal that, that um, Robin the Honest Man has half tamed. And she, she leads him, really. She leads him, maybe with a bit of help from the angel, she leads him, she stops him throwing himself in the Thames, leads him up the, the track of the buried river fleet, which is a st- stunning thing itself. I'm, at midsummer, I followed the track of the mid- You know, you, there's a place where you can actually hear it gurgling under a drain. And the whole fleet has in Fleet Street, of course. Yes, it's, yes. It's, it's that part of town, isn't it? <clears throat> yes, but it, it rises in Hampstead Heath. Mm. It goes under King's Cross. There was a battlefield there. Um, the old St Pancras Church was built on its banks. And in the 18th century, those banks were covered with primroses. Um, but it gradually became a sort of um, sewer, open sewer. And so it was covered over. And um, it goes right down under some under Holborn Viaduct, um, Grazing Road, down down there. down it, it comes out into the Thames under Blackfriars Bridge. Um I think there was a little bit that you were going to read for us, wasn't there? Well, um, which had yes. a very specific sort of resonance. Well, this this ties in with um, the homeless man is in a way the centre of part of the Christmas story, which is the fact that um, Mary and Joseph were displaced, and then there was no room for them, so they were sleeping rough. And um, after the three wise men tactlessly told King Herod that they were looking for the king of the Jews and he was born in Bethlehem, there was a massacre. It says all the, all the um, children of Bethlehem and the coasts thereof, that's a lot of kids being killed because of to find one. Mm. Um, and they became refugees and they became asylum seekers and they went to Egypt. So they are really the patron saint of asylum seekers. So being outcast, being persecuted is there in the Christmas story, in the hieroglyph of it right from the start. And um, I felt that the fox, the, fox mediates, the, the fox mediates between Robin as this homeless man who does not speak to anybody, who needs to come in from the cold. So I'll, I'll just read yes. this little bit. And this is in the voice of the Angel of Silence. The fox is here. She's coming. Her yellow eyes, her white-tipped brush and pointed mask are the only things Robin can recognise 
as his. This is my night, the 24 hours when silence has a voice. Can I get Robin to give up a life apart? Christmas is a tightrope. Rejected is its heart. But so is light in the dark. He's not alone. Let him see light arrive across the globe, a world more possible and brighter than he knows. The night ahead will ebb and flow, a night of vigil, stations of the soul, an old truth dawning, a lightening of time, until, before the morning, we might gaze at this bent world with a blaze of hope from absolutely nowhere. Come with me into longed-for, into all we can imagine of mystery, wonder, hope, despair, and a world, many worlds, elsewhere. Ruth, that's so lovely. And what it brings to me, you've been talking about the past and all the traditions that this connects to the stories from the Bible stories to, to Hardy, for goodness sake. But it just brings so many literary traditions into into my mind. You mentioned the Thames a little while ago, which of course makes you think of Dickens. And that makes you think of those the idea of somebody, a visitation. Christmas is a time of visitation, as in A Christmas Carol. That's very it? interesting that you say that. Yes, because in a way, the, although I didn't plan it like this, I realised I'd been following the arc of the Christmas Carol, because here is a supernatural character who is taking Robin on a journey. And so the Angel of Silence shows Robin the sun rising across the world. And I did a lot of stuff about um, where the sun rises when, and it starts in East Australia and spreads across the world over Bethlehem and Rome, and it ends up in Manhattan. Um, anyway, in my poem it does. Um, so, And gradually he's also bringing Robin into the fold of the human. It's just such a, a cheering story. And we should make it clear that although you have um, yielded to that sort of traditional Christian story, it felt to me tremendously sort of boundaryless. I hope so. I mean, I was talking to a Muslim friend of mine and he was talking about Muslim angels. And, um, you know, there was, there's a Nigerian character in it. Mm. Um, you know, she, she's, she's some actually working in a crisis centre and she washes his hair and she's the first person he talks to as well. Um, so crisis at Christmas is a, is a really sort of important part of, of what's happening in our cities to help people. Um, and I just wanted it to be, yes, boundaryless. Well, I think it's a, a great, um, a great present, whatever age you are. And you said that your editor had demanded you to be ruthless, but we have been very ruthful. Thank you very, very much for joining us today. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you, thank you Alex. Well, happy Christmas. Happy Christmas. <laughs> Jeanette Winterson was born in Manchester and has written 10 novels for adults, including Oranges Are Not the Only Fruit, as well as children's books, non-fiction and screenplays. Her latest book is called Christmas Days, 12 stories and 12 recipes for 12 days. I got the chance to catch up with her earlier this month. Jeanette, thank you so much for joining us on the Vintage Podcast. Uh, would I be right in saying that you adore Christmas? I love Christmas. It's my favourite time of the year. I think because when I was growing up in, in Accrington in the chilly, frozen north, our household was, was, was generally a rather claustrophobic and miserable place because my mother was a flamboyant depressive, you know, the woman with the revolver in the duster drawer and two sets of false teeth. But at Christmas, she suddenly became happy for no reason that anybody really understood. And it started on the 21st of December and it went right through the 12 days of Christmas and then she became unhappy again. But those 12 days were really important to us and to me. So that's a special memory.
And your new book, Christmas Days, sort of incorporates some of those memories mm. together with recipes and stories, which is quite, I think, an, an unusual concoction, isn't it? It's an amazing thing to have together in a book. Where did the idea for the book sort of first come from? This was really a knit-your-own-Christmas book. Um, it evolved in that I realised that I'd, I'd written... Uh, four or five Christmas stories I think four have been published and I love writing them and I suddenly thought why don't I do a 12 days of Christmas a story for every day so that began as a rather simple project and then I thought hold on there are actually little rituals things I like to do around Christmas most of which involve food many of which have involved my friends over the years like Ruth Rendell Mm. uh, Kathy Acker uh, both of those people now dead and suddenly the whole thing came together in a different way Um, you know and the great thing about working now is you can have um, a sort of collage book where you just smash through the forms and you can have stories and you have cooking recipes and you can have anecdotes and you can have the whole history of Christmas which I've got in there and bring everything together and and everybody at Vintage was very supportive of that and they watched the thing evolve and just cheered me on and then suddenly we had this beautiful little book. I I felt like I had this amazing insight into these little memories of yours, the sort mm. of moments at Christmas. You mentioned there about your, your mother. We, we have mm. Mrs. Winterson's mince pie yeah. recipe. And that is book. a brilliant recipe. I do recommend it to everybody. There is no better mince pie. <laughs> With sort of little hints of the characters of people that come through. I mean, you mentioned there Kathy Acker. Mm. You have her custard recipe in there, but you yeah. mentioned that she couldn't cook, she couldn't even stir. No, she couldn't. It's hopeless. Um, and she was staying with me one Christmas, and of course I said, look, Kathy, we have to make custard, and she looked at me completely blankly. I mean, you know, um, a, a, American Jew, they don't really do pouring custard in the way that we do. But then she got into the whole history of it, and she discovered that uh, in the 1950s, uh, Dylan Thomas had invented this notional thing called night custard to stop people starving during the night. <laughs> uh, and, and she would have fell in love with this idea and of course Dylan Thomas had died in the Chelsea Hotel in New York uh, and, and if, you, if you remember Bob Dylan called it, named himself after Dylan Thomas and so suddenly the whole thing became a kind of New York custard and Kathy Acker's New York custard so I, whenever I'm making it now I think about her think about her yeah um, there's sort of the, the range of stories is, is quite impressive in the book as well you start off with a story which is almost really a story about a couple discovering their love for each other again Mm. over Christmas. Mm. Um, Where did that story come from? I was really intrigued by that as a beginning to to the fiction in the book. Because we lose the important things so easily under the clutter and the trivia of life. Mm. And especially in our fast and furious world now, that's really true. You know, we always lose sight of the big things, the important things. And to me, love is the most important thing in all of our lives. And love is at the centre of the Christmas story and the, you know, the birth of the Christ child, new beginnings, new possibilities, uh, second chances. We, you know, I mean, I'm always interested in that in my fiction anyway. Mm. And I wanted to write a story where, you know, where we might show two people going through the motions of Christmas but actually having grown apart and then by, by some miraculous intervention, which is what happens, this strange child appears, realising that they do still love each other but they have to hold on to that and work at it a little bit. Mm. You know, love isn't something that you can just leave lying there and expect it to survive on its own you know it's like gardening you have to do a bit every day and we always forget this and so it was really a story about tending to love and and remembering that the person you love always needs nurture encouragement and just being told I love you how many of us do that every day but we should 
It's, well, it seems to be the right kind of feeling around Christmas. There is a lot yeah. of love in the book. Um, yeah. You mentioned your, your partner, Susie Orbach, yeah. and of course she's Jewish, and mm. so there's this great sort of thing about how do you celebrate <laughs> Christmas with somebody who's Jewish. Yeah. But she has her own recipe in the book. She, she does. She's Susie's gravelite. Susie's a great cook. Um, you know, she, she is, she's, a, she's a proper restaurant-style cook. You know, I'm still cooking from the 1950s. <laughs> uh, mince pies, casseroles, mulled wine, fish cakes. Um, she looks at my food and she she calls it Goyesha Hazarai, which is really Yiddish for uh, the sort of shit that the Christians cook. Um, <laughs> but I think Goyesha Hazarai is pretty good. Uh, so she, with her, of course, uh, all, always with the Jews, Christmas Eve is the big festival, the big festivity, the feast, because Christmas Day is irrelevant because mm. nothing happens. There mm. is no Messiah. <laughs> you know, they're, they're still waiting. Um, so we always have a big Christmas Eve party where generally Susie does the food. And indeed, you know, one of the recipes in the book is where I decided I would do the food one Christmas. Um, and the sort of horror and terror in her face when I announced this. Uh, and out of this comes another recipe. Our friend, the writer, Camilla Shamsi, diplomatically stepped in. You know, Camilla was, was brought up in Karachi, so she didn't want to be in another war zone with her friends. So she was able to smooth it out and say, I will do you a leftover turkey biryani, which has become a whole thing now of itself. We're going to have it again this Christmas. I was particularly tempted by that, actually, when I read that It's recipe. a beautiful dish. And because the turkey's already cooked, um, because you've had it at Christmas, it's actually very fast because you're yeah. not doing the meat to start with. So anybody out there who's got loads of leftover turkey and that means everyone, really needs this recipe to do the most authentic proper Pakistani biryani. I'm, I'm putting it on the list for this Christmas. Put it on the house. list, it's delicious. Well, there's a great variety of food but there's a great variety of stories as well and, and yeah. what I loved in fact was that there were a few stories that were quite dark, the mm. sort of this sort of almost ghost stories, mm. which you do see cropping up at Christmas. Why do you mm. think that is? Mm. It's sort of a weird thing that happens at Christmas. Yes, and it doesn't happen really until the 19th century, which you know, is, is the century where the Christmas we, we, we think of as Christmas really comes into its own, you mm. know, with Dickens as the, the, the high priest of Christmas. Yeah. Uh, and of course, still the best Christmas story ever written, I think, uh, is, is A Christmas Carol yeah. and Scrooge's visitation by the three spirits. Um, it, it's, because, it's partly because Christmas itself comes comes out of the old Celtic feast of Samhain, which would begin on Halloween, All Hallows' Eve, a festival of the dead. And it was thought that, you know, as the nights drew in and darkened and the cold came, the dead would come and visit us um, and we would have that communion with them. So there's a porous membrane between the living and the dead um, that the old festivals of Christmas do celebrate. And in Victorian times, you know, there's a great theory, which I kind of love, that because everybody was suffering from sort of low-level carbon monoxide poisoning from the gas lamps and the coal fires, and it was fog everywhere. Um, this idea of always seeing apparitions and spectres which we really associate with the 19th century, that's when the ghost story really comes alive. Yeah. And so at Christmas naturally it gets incorporated um, and I wanted to both celebrate and honour that tradition and write some of my own because everybody loves a spooky story around the fire, don't they? Oh god, absolutely. Yeah. I, those I think were I think two of my favourite stories in the collection because mm. there is something, as you say, as the night's drawing, mm. you close the curtains, a ghost story somehow yeah. taps into something something absolutely perfect yeah. and a and Christmas in, yeah. ghost story is even better I think so and in the clean modern world you know we're not so used to seeing little visions but I live in the country and where I live is very dark there's no street lights um, there's nobody around me and you go out at night and you hear a crunch behind you and you wonder 
<laughs> well, thank you so much for sharing some of those sort of Christmas memories. Are, are you all prepared for this Christmas? Have you done all your shopping? Are you ready to... Absolutely not. <laughs> no, I start my shopping on Christmas Eve. Okay. Um, I go Because I go to Liberty. Listen, this is a good tip for everyone. Uh, the sale at Liberty starts on Christmas Eve. You can go in there and buy everything half price. And it's all done at once. And you can leave, have a glass of champagne. And instead of having a nervous breakdown for the whole of December, you get it all done in four hours and you feel good. There you go. A top shopping tip Don. from Jeanette Winderson. Well, as I say, thank you so much for sharing it. It's, I really enjoy reading the book. And for anyone listening who is reached Christmas, uh, has reached Christmas Eve and is wondering what to buy somebody, this book has, as I say, everything that you could want for Christmas. Everything. £15 <laughs> well spent. <laughs> Jeanette, thank you so much. Thank you. That's it, Will. We've reached the end of the show. Thank you to all our guests this month, Jeanette Winterson, Ruth Padell and Jen Campbell, as well as the many, many amazing authors we've had on throughout the year. And remember, we're only asking for one thing this Christmas. If you like what we do, please rate us on whatever platform you listen to us on. It would really help us out. We have part two of this podcast where we'll be looking forward to 2017 coming up just after Christmas. Until then, a very happy Christmas from us both. Happy Christmas. (laughs) 